It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. The ambulance sped down the streets of Riverside, California. It was 1994, just five days after Valentine's Day, and 31-year-old Gloria Ramirez was on the brink of death. Six weeks ago, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Earlier that evening, her boyfriend Johnny called 911 when he noticed that she was having trouble breathing. When responders arrived around 8 p.m., Gloria's heart was racing, her blood pressure was in free fall, and her breathing was shallow and fast. Inside the ambulance, paramedics gave her oxygen and an IV, but nothing seemed to help her condition. She was incoherent and unresponsive. Around 8.15, Gloria was rushed inside Riverside General Hospital, where a team of nurses and doctors waited. They took her straight into trauma room one and got started. She was given Valium and Ativan to sedate her, followed by Bretilium to get her heart's rhythm under control. It didn't work. Her readings were more in line with someone in their 60s, not a 31-year-old not even one with cervical cancer. They took a blood sample to get a better understanding of what was happening. But when they drew Gloria's blood, they were shocked by what they saw. Inside the syringe, small beige crystals started to form. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. We'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're covering the 1994 death of Gloria Ramirez, a 31-year-old mother of two who had been diagnosed with cervical cancer. After being rushed to the hospital for what appeared to be a heart attack, nearly two dozen hospital staff members who came in contact with Ramirez became violently ill, which led some to wonder, was Gloria Ramirez the world's first toxic woman? Inside trauma room one, doctors cut open Gloria's shirt to operate, When they did, they noticed an oily sheen to her skin, but they didn't give it much thought. Their priorities were elsewhere. 
The lead medical professional, Dr. Humberto Ochoa, prepared the defibrillator. He let out a clear, and everyone stepped back. Gloria's body recoiled off the table, but her heart rate was still out of control. It was beating too fast to allow any blood through. He gave it one more go. Still nothing. Susan Kane, a registered nurse, was asked to take a blood sample. But as Kane stepped toward Gloria, she smelled an odd mixture of garlic and fruit. She didn't have time to dwell on it. She stuck the IV in Gloria's arm. The blood came easily enough, but as it filled the tubes, a chemical aroma filled the room. Kane assumed it was from chemotherapy. It's not uncommon for the blood of cancer patients to smell like ammonia or the chemicals used during treatment. What she didn't know was that Gloria had yet to start chemo. Kane handed the syringe over to a medical resident, Julie Gorchinsky, who noticed manila-colored crystals forming in the vial. Dr. Ochoa noticed the crystals as well, but as he did, Kane suddenly dropped to the ground. The doctor reached out to break the nurse's fall, but Kane was out cold. They put her on a gurney and wheeled her into the lobby. Other staff would take care of her. It wasn't uncommon for people to occasionally faint in the ER, even seasoned professionals. Stress levels are high. You're on your feet, and sometimes people forget to eat and hydrate. But as Dr. Ochoa went back to work on Gloria, things started to spiral even more out of control. Gorchinsky was also getting lightheaded. She had to leave the room, too. They were down two sets of hands. Gorchinsky stumbled to the nurse's station and sat down. She thought she just needed some air, but moments later, when a co-worker came by to check on her, Gorchinsky was unconscious. Suddenly, Gorchinsky's body began to spasm. Then her breathing became unsteady before stopping entirely. It became a cycle. Spasm, <laughs> panic breathing, then nothing. Over and over. Back in the trauma room, Maureen Welch, a respiratory therapist, was giving Gloria more oxygen. As she did, the world around her started to grow fuzzy. She fainted and hit the ground. Three previously healthy professionals were suddenly violently ill. It was becoming clear that everyone in the room could be in danger. Dr. Ochoa looked around for any cause of the sudden illnesses. He spotted a sink full of various liquids. He drained it, hoping it would have some positive effect, but it didn't. Chaos reigned in the ER as Gloria's condition deteriorated. Soon, nearly half of Dr. Ochoa's staff were incapacitated. One after another, they dropped to the ground, ran from the room. No one knew what was happening. The common denominator was exposure to Gloria, but that seemed impossible. It had to be something else in the room. Ochoa turned on the ventilation and ordered an emergency evacuation of the department. On the way out, they threw away the used syringe. They couldn't afford to bring it outside, not if Gloria's blood was toxic. The parking lot of Riverside General Hospital became a makeshift ER for every other patient besides Gloria. Even if their condition was critical, Dr. Ochoa was confident that they were safer outside. As for Ochoa, 
he and a select few team members stayed inside to care for Gloria. She was still his patient, and he was going to do everything in his power to keep her alive. But it wasn't looking good. Gloria's heartbeat became faint. Dr. Ochoa shocked her heart twice before administering even more drugs, but it was all ineffective. He worked on Gloria for 20 more minutes. Then, at 8.50 p.m. on February 19, 1994, Gloria Ramirez was pronounced dead. Gloria was wheeled into a secluded room. They wanted to take every precaution. If there were toxins in her bloodstream, they couldn't let them escape. Dr. Ochoa exited the hospital shortly after 9 p.m. to a parking lot filled with his staff. He was at a loss for words. It was unlike anything he had ever seen. Kane was awake, but her arms were twitching. She said that her face felt like it was burning. Gorchinsky was still suffering from apnea, and her limbs were violently shaking. Welch had trouble controlling her limbs after she came to. The alarms had been sounded. The hazmat team was on their way. All ambulances were diverted to other hospitals in the area. Riverside General Hospital wasn't safe. A little after 10 p.m., the hazmat team arrived. They donned large yellow and blue suits, each with their own air supply. If you looked at the scene from a bird's eye view, it would look straight out of a sci-fi film. Around 11 p.m., the hazmat team entered the hospital. Everything was eerily quiet as they slowly made their way through the main lobby. Every room they entered, they made sure it was clear until they finally reached trauma room one. The table in the middle of the room was empty. Equipment was scattered all over the floor. It looked like a war zone, but the hazmat instruments weren't picking up any signs of toxins. Someone noticed the ventilation was on. That could have eliminated the presence of anything airborne, but it didn't seem to spread throughout the rest of the hospital. The team made their way to the room where Gloria was being quarantined. Inside, Gloria's body was laying on the same gurney she arrived in only hours earlier. They took measurements of the air in her room as well. Again, they didn't find a trace of anything dangerous. They exited the hospital and reported to their county superiors. All clear. The hospital staff was aghast. How could that be? Gloria Ramirez was dead and 23 different people experienced symptoms upon coming in contact with her. Many of them were still receiving care. It had to be something. Maybe it was a completely new chemical, something undetectable, something that could only be created inside the human body. Coming up, the fallout of Gloria's death and the ensuing investigation. Now, back to the story. On Sunday, February 20th, 1994, 30-year-old Maggie Ramirez Garcia went to grab the morning paper. It always had sensational headlines, but that morning's were especially ghastly. Toxic woman infects ER staff. It didn't sound like a woman. It sounded like a creature from outer space. The image on the front page depicted men in hazmat suits carrying out a sealed metal casket, allegedly to ensure the woman couldn't infect anyone else. 
The details of the story were bizarre. A significant number of the hospital's staff experienced symptoms of illness after coming into contact with her. Five had to be hospitalized. The entire emergency room shut down and didn't reopen until the following morning around 7 a.m. They gave little information about the woman besides her age, 31. Maggie's sister, Gloria, was 31. She wondered if maybe she had gone to school with the alien woman. She could ask her later when they spoke on the phone. Gloria was recently diagnosed with cervical cancer. Ever since, Maggie especially treasured their moments together. It was serious, but Gloria was young, so she stood a fighting chance. Chemotherapy started in a few days, and Maggie planned on being there every step of the way. And she'd bring plenty of interesting newspaper headlines to amuse her sister. That afternoon, the phone rang. Maggie was expecting to hear her sister's voice, but instead, it was her mother-in-law. She sounded cold and distant. The conversation that followed didn't seem real. Gloria was the woman in the metal casket on the front page of the newspaper. Just like that, Maggie's world fell apart. But there was little time to grieve. Reporters arrived on her doorstep that evening. All she wanted was to be left alone with her family. Maggie had no information to give them. She was just as in the dark as they were. Riverside County began their official investigation almost immediately. But they had to be cautious. There were so many unknowns, not the least of which was the dangers surrounding handling Gloria's body. Add to that the media breathing down their necks, and any wrong move could be disastrous. First, the air samples collected by the hazmat team were sent to be analyzed by a lab. They hadn't detected any noxious gas, but they could have missed something. In fact, just one year earlier, a hydrogen sulfide, or sewer gas, was found in the hospital. It's incredibly deadly, but occasionally appears in medical facilities that routinely handle chemicals. The authorities wondered if this was a repeat event. In the meantime, there was the autopsy. On February 24th, the coroner's office prepared for the procedure. It was conducted late at night to reduce the chance of the general public being exposed. They built a temporary structure outside and set up cameras to monitor the room. At 1 a.m., the lead coroner and three other pathologists donned hazmat suits and entered. A separate team closely monitored the situation through closed-circuit televisions. If anything happened, they would intervene. Meanwhile, the media gathered across the street, waiting for something to go wrong. Inside the room, the pathologist took Gloria's body out of the metal box. It was cold to the touch. They cracked open her chest and recorded their findings. They took tissue samples from various parts of her body and organs. They found evidence of a heart attack, but they had expected as much. Otherwise, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. They restitched Gloria and placed her body back inside her airtight container. In many respects, it was good news. If sample tests came back clean, they would be able to hand her body over to her family within a week. When the four pathologists emerged from the building an hour and a half after they entered, each one was told to stand in a small plastic pool. They were hosed down four times, 
Then they were stripped and rewashed. The cleaning team and anyone else who had recent direct contact with them were taken to the hospital for observation. Deputy Coroner Stephanie Albright was in charge of Gloria's investigation. There was a tremendous amount of pressure on her shoulders. There was a grieving, upset family, a confused hospital staff, and media who were out for blood. Luckily for Albright, the autopsy gave her a lead. Traces of a chemical called DMSO. DMSO was first used as an industrial solvent in papermaking before being introduced into American homes in the 1960s for pain relief. It was advertised as a wonder drug. However, after a closer study by the Federal Drug Administration, DMSO was pulled from most shells because adverse side effects included vision loss. Due to its popularity, however, it still remained a staple in many people's homes. The coroner identified DMSO as the cause of the oily sheen and garlic smell of Gloria's skin. Most likely, she had used it for pain relief. But as for what pain? That remained up in the air. And the revelation of DMSO ointment seemed to be where Albright's good luck ended. Months passed without any proof of toxins in Gloria's system. Maggie and the rest of the Ramirez family were losing faith. Each day with no news felt like a lifetime. They hired a private lawyer to help them take a look at the mysterious circumstances surrounding Gloria's death. They believed that the county should have had answers. They had millions of dollars in resources. Eventually, the Ramirez's couldn't help but wonder whether the hospital was covering up something much more sinister, like the fact that they could be responsible. It was then that the Ramirez family found the violation from a year prior, when the hospital was cited for sewer gas. Not only that, they received testimony that Riverside General may have plenty to hide— a man named Dennis Weiss claimed that he had been admitted to the hospital only weeks before Gloria. During his stay, he was forced to leave his room twice, supposedly because of fumes coming from the bathroom. He told them that whatever it was, it made him feel extremely nauseous. He believed that if he stayed in the room, he would have gotten sick. The smell was unlike anything he had ever come in contact with. What started as a conspiracy theory was suddenly becoming plausible. Gloria's sister Maggie's resolve was sealed when she found out that Dr. Ochoa had flushed unknown liquids down the drain in the trauma room during Gloria's treatment. It didn't matter so much what they were, but why they were there. They had to have been the cause of the doctor's and nurse's illness, not Gloria. And if they were, that would mean that the hospital was to blame for Gloria's death. Maggie contacted every journalist that would listen. The story needed to get out to the public. Riverside General Hospital killed her sister. As Maggie's claims hit the news, pressure mounted on the forensic teams to provide answers. They had to find a cause of death that could prove the hospital's innocence. No one felt that pressure more than Stephanie Albright, and she was willing to authorize any path to 
to a solution. On March 20th, the county performed a second autopsy on Gloria, and they did so without alerting her family. They took even more samples, but once again, the results were inconclusive. At the same time, in order to quell the rumors about the presence of sewer gas in the hospital, the county ordered a review of the hospital's plumbing reports. By March 23rd, the county claimed that sewer gas was decisively absent from all reports. It couldn't have been the cause of death. The county then reached out to the lab at the Forensic Science Center at Livermore National Laboratory to examine the samples. They were shipped on dry ice up the coast to their facility. Hopefully, the director of the lab, Brian Andressen, would have more success. The results wouldn't take long. But unfortunately, Stephanie Albright would never see the results. On March 27, 1994, while on the phone with her estranged husband, Stephanie Albright died by suicide. The coroner report suggested that pressure from Gloria's case was almost certainly a contributing factor. One tragedy turned into two. Meanwhile, at the Livermore National Laboratory, Brian Andressen ran countless tests on the tissue samples, but was running into maybe the same problems that everyone else had. He wasn't finding much. But he did find something, an anomaly. Gloria had a high concentration of an organic compound known as dimethyl sulfone in her liver. It was the probable cause of the ammonia-like smell, but it didn't have the capability to make a room full of people pass out. On April 12th, lab director Brian Andressen flew down to Southern California to give Riverside County lab's findings. Inconclusive. It had now been almost two months since Gloria's death, and her family wanted her body back. They wanted the opportunity to put their worries, as well as their daughter and sister, to rest. But first, Maggie Ramirez Garcia wanted an independent autopsy to be performed. When she told authorities, they told her that she could only have Gloria's body if she was willing to keep her sealed in the metal container. To the county, it was a way to protect the public. But for the Ramirez family, it was another sign of a cover-up. They filed a court order, and within a matter of days, a judge ruled in their favor. On April 14th, Gloria's body was handed over to the Ramirez family. On April 15th, independent pathologist Dr. Richard Fukumoto performed a nearly unprecedented third autopsy. That's more than even late President John F. Kennedy. This time, there were no high-tech suits or emergency precautions, only a coroner and a body. Dr. Fukumoto wasn't scared. He didn't believe the county's assertion that a toxin was present. Toxin or not, Gloria's body was in rough shape. Dr. Fukumoto said that there had been cross-contamination between different tissues. That and the presence of fecal matter from the decomposing body ruined any chance of him running more sophisticated tests and possibly finding an answer. Another autopsy down without anything to show for it. He could only say for certain that Gloria hadn't died from her cervical cancer. And at the time of his examination, there were no toxins in her body. On April 20th, 1994, 
Gloria's family finally were able to hold a memorial service. All they wanted was for her to be remembered for more than her death, more than the toxic woman from the news. Eight days later, Riverside County gave an official statement. Gloria Ramirez died of natural causes. She was killed by a heart attack as a result of kidney failure caused by her cervical cancer. The news was world-shattering. It was inconsistent with everything the Ramirez family believed and everything they knew to be true. And how could they get away with giving no explanation for how or why the hospital staff had gotten sick? Well, the state of California might have had similar concerns because afterwards they stepped in to take on their own investigation. Coming up, the state of California's shocking conclusions. Now back to the story. Two months after 31-year-old Gloria Ramirez's death, nobody seemed any closer to an answer of why. Gloria couldn't be saved. 23 people became ill while treating her. The deputy assigned to the case died by suicide. Riverside County may have officially stated that Gloria died of natural causes, but they never explained why or how the hospital workers got sick. During the spring of 1994, California's Department of Health and Human Services stepped in to investigate. Anna Osorio and Kristen Waller, some of the state's top doctors, were put in charge. They created a survey for all these supposedly infected staff to fill out, and they found that the symptoms they each experienced weren't all consistent. Given that the cause was likely one thing, that didn't make sense. After months, they released a controversial report. It stated that what the staff members experienced was actually a case of mass hysteria. In other words, the symptoms the staff members experienced were psychosomatic, created by the mind, not real. For Julia Gorczynski, the conclusion was laughable. She was in the third year of her residency as a medical student. She wouldn't panic over a heart attack patient. All medical professionals are trained to deal with that kind of stress. Her symptoms were everything but imaginary. After Gloria's death, Gorczynski spent weeks in the hospital battling a documented case of hepatitis. She spent even longer without the ability to walk. She had surgery on both of her knees to try and reintroduce blood flow. Maureen Welch, one of the nurses in the trauma room that night, was equally unsatisfied. She had over a decade of experience treating patients before Gloria. There was no way a heart attack patient would have phased her enough to faint. She was convinced it was more than mass hysteria, and she decided to do something about it. Welch had read about the Forensic Science Center at Livermore and their involvement in the case. In her mind, they were the only impartial party to have gotten involved. She reached back out to the Forensic Science Center's lab director, Brian Andressen, and urged him to take another look. Though Andressen didn't agree to take it on himself, he asked his deputy director, Patrick Grant, to scan through the files they had on Gloria to see if he could find anything unusual. And Grant may have been the fresh set of eyes the case needed. He honed in on the inclusion of DMSO in the coroner's report. 
In his younger years, Grant had been an athlete and used it often for muscle and joint pain. He, like everyone before him, knew that DMSO couldn't have caused a room of medical professionals to faint. But it had to have played a part. Then, he noticed the high concentration of dimethyl sulfone in Gloria's system, which is only a single oxygen atom away from DMSO. Grant wondered whether the DMSO in her system might have suddenly changed to dimethyl sulfone after interacting with pure oxygen. He considered other theories, but he kept returning to DMSO. It was one of the only constants in all of the reports. Then suddenly, it clicked. Gloria had DMSO in her system on the date of her heart attack. She had dimethyl sulfone in her body weeks after she died. And during her treatment, she was administered large quantities of oxygen to help keep her alive, both in the ambulance and in the trauma room. What happened if another oxygen atom was added to dimethyl sulfone? Grant flipped through a book of chemical compounds and landed on the page. His finger slid down the correct column. It becomes dimethyl sulfate, a deadly chemical that has been tested by the United States military. In these tests, it was used as nerve gas. Exposure can cause dizziness, seizures, and loss of muscle control that can lead to asphyxiation. This had to be what had caused the chaos in the hospital that night. He was almost positive. But how did the extra oxygen atom bond with the DMSO? His team set out to see if they could replicate what happened. They used a solution called Ringers, which has almost the exact same chemical makeup as blood. The only difference is that it doesn't have red blood cells and it's clear. But that clarity makes it easy to observe. They put DMSO in the mixture and added oxygen. The more they added, the richer it became. At higher levels, the sulfone became unstable. When they reduced the temperature to ambient room level, they saw exactly what had happened when the blood was drawn from Gloria. Crystals formed. It was the result they were looking for. Though Grant and his team weren't able to turn the sulfone into sulfate, they did theorize how it could happen. They thought that if the unstable compound broke down at room temperature and the components separated, they could then reform to create the toxic dimethyl sulfate. Grant was thrilled with his findings. It wasn't perfect, and it still needed to be peer-reviewed, but it was something, and closer than anyone had come to a plausible explanation. In November of 1994, the preliminary study of Grant's findings was handed over to Riverside County. The team made it clear that the study needed to be peer-reviewed and that maybe another group would be more successful in turning dimethyl sulfone into dimethyl sulfate. But the county paid them no mind. They had been itching for an answer for nearly nine months. They published the preliminary results of the study before any further research could be conducted. Gloria's family was devastated. Months after the county stated that Gloria had died of natural causes, once again, the story was changing. And it felt like Gloria was being scapegoated and blamed for something she had no control over. 
The Ramirez family stood by the fact that the hospital was still at fault. The unsupported findings were just a way of absolving themselves of the blame. The county had no shame. They didn't care as long as they were exonerated of any responsibility. Three years later, in 1997, the study was peer-reviewed and published. While the support of the scientific community hasn't been unanimous, there has been a general consensus that it provided the most plausible explanation, even if it's yet to be fully confirmed. And that's what we find the most likely answer, a lethal combination of DMSO and pure oxygen poisoned Gloria Ramirez and gassed the medical professionals who tried to treat her. In 1998, Riverside General Hospital closed and moved into a brand new building across town. To some, it was an admission of guilt. They believed the county was burying their past misdeeds. When the building was eventually raised, all evidence went with it. But while that old building no longer remains, the memories forever linger. And what really happened to Gloria Ramirez and the staff of medical professionals who treated her remains unanswered. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.